First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't generate amusing holiday cards, but it will personalize career paths for your people and let you know which suppliers are best so you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology, real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. Growing a business in any capacity is hard, but trying to tap into a foreign market can be exceptionally tricky. Enter Super Ordinary, a company that's bridging the gap between U.S. brands and international consumers. So I wanted to get a better sense of how Super Ordinary is tapping into social commerce and how it's navigating its global market approach, especially with countries where U.S. relations are particularly fraught. This is Creative Control. I'm your host, Casey Finey. Each week, I'll be unpacking the driving forces and people shaping the creator economy and what it all means for its future. Julian Reese is the co-founder and CEO of Superordinary, which he launched in Shanghai in 2017. The company acts as a liaison of sorts between U.S. brands and international markets like China. But Superordinary has a specific focus on social commerce, which has created a unique opportunity for creators. Julian, so thank you so much for being here. I think Superordinary is such a really, it's just an interesting company. You started your career as a hedge fund manager, and then you founded Superordinary, which is a very different <laughs> profession and career path. So yeah. what led you to start Superordinary? It was one of these things where I'm a big believer in fate. The world's going to take you where it's you know need to be. And in Superordinary, um, I kind of stumbled upon the idea where I was very curious. And as an entrepreneur, you constantly are having to be curious. And I saw this opportunity where in China, when I was living in Hong Kong, that this was becoming the largest market in the world. And all these incredible brands that I saw in the US weren't available and I was curious why. So I moved over to China and started figuring out, could I build a business about selling products into China using social commerce and using creators? So five years ago, that's how it started. And it's been like a crazy journey ever since then. I guess, how would you describe the social media influencer economy in China like versus the U.S.? Because I know in China, they're heavy on e-commerce. That's something that's been ingrained <laughs> in their culture in a way that the U.S. is playing catch-up. That's right. I think the major difference you notice when you are in China is that there are no websites. In the U.S., 80% of the websites are these individual www.xyz.com. Where in China, it's made up by these mega platforms such as Alibaba's Tmall platform, the Taobao platform, Xiaohongshu, which is Little Red Book, and then obviously WeChat and Douyin, which is TikTok in China. So there are these mega platforms which are representative of most of the volume. Whereas in the US, you have Amazon, you have Walmart.com, and then you have all the individual websites. So when you think about social commerce in China, it comes in the form that, first of all, everyone is an influencer, everyone's a KOL, everyone's a creator. And I think they were really three or four years ahead of the US in this fashion. So WeChat was really a super mega app that you could do everything through that one individual app. So imagine if you had WhatsApp and you had commerce functionality and payments functionality and browsing functionality 
all of these websites and apps were able to do all these different functions. So the idea of these influencers was really born out of the commercialization and, and the willingness to really work. Interesting. I'd love it if you could just tell me a little bit more about like how Super Ordinary works exactly and how it fits into this larger ecosystem. Yeah, so I would classify Super Ordinary in its infancy as a B2B2C company where we sit in between... So many alphabets. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, so I'm going to just confuse you. And then, <laughs> a Z to P, no. So anyway, so a B2B2C company is really a company that sits in between a platform and the consumer. We're able to facilitate and really create a business around helping brands operate on a certain platform. So if we were to list, uh, I'm going to use Amazon as an example. If we bought a Chinese product and put it onto Amazon today, and that had no awareness in the US whatsoever, it wouldn't be surprising that there would be zero sales. So in order to build a brand, we see ourselves in China as the brand manager of that particular brand. So for example, our first brand was one called Pharmacy, which was a very small brand in the US at the time had zero social listening, zero awareness. And what we did was really act as if we owned the brand. So really starting to tell the storytelling, where the brand came from, what the reason for being, and started to really start building the brand slowly. We would work with creators and get them to endorse the brand, give testimonials. And it was what we call the zero to one strategy. And the way that we work with a brand is we buy inventory from the brand. We ship it to our Hong Kong warehouse and then once the brand starts making sales on these various platforms, we would then facilitate the logistics to get the brand to the end local consumer in China. But I think what's happened and as the brand has started to grow is that we start to register these brands in what we call the general trade market, meaning that they are China FDA compliant. And then we can start working on many of the local platforms in China. So deliver them to brick and mortar stores like um, Sephora we're able to work with a local TikTok account. So um, TikTok has exploded over the last 18 months in China. TikTok is actually, in terms of volume uh, in beauty, is now bigger than Alibaba. Two years ago, it was non-existent. So for those who are listening and thinking about what's going to happen in the US, there could be some interesting leading indicators of what could happen. So now as a company, we operate under 30 brands in China. We have our own studios in our offices in China and we do end-to-end -end marketing. And to the point now that we're one of the largest players in the beauty sector in China, especially in the indie beauty category. That kind of answers my next question because I was going to say, I mean, as a go-between for brands, essentially, what kind of returns are you seeing? Because Operating in China is no easy feat. I mean, we can, we're going to get to the government issues and like the tensions between the U.S. and China. Yeah. But there's so many layers to this. So yeah. it sounds like the juice has been worth the squeeze, so to speak. But I'd love to hear a little bit about what are the returns? Like what kind of growth have you seen both in the brands and in Super Ordinary in this really interesting model? Yeah, so the business has grown over the last four to five years into several hundred million in revenue. And we continue to grow. I think the, the organic growth of our brands has been incredible. If you look at the beauty market from 2016 to 2021, I would say that the average compounded growth rate has been roughly around 20%. 
in in 2021 to 22, because of the pandemic, it dramatically slowed down. But now we think that the normalized return will get back to the 10 to 15% range. And we think that's a very healthy growth rate. China, for all intents and purposes, is the largest beauty market in the world. And many brands are not there. But the one thing I would say is it's a very technical market. So unlike other markets, it's all about cost, marketing expense, channel costs, logistics. It's a really, I would almost call it mathematical because to operate in this market, you really need to know what you're doing because any change in supply chain cost or taxation will really affect your business. So as a company, Superordinary has really been focusing on getting to know our brand partners exceptionally well. I know all our brand partners, CEOs and founders, and we have to build these really strong relationships because sometimes the going gets tough because these the market, it's not like a, like the US market, which is very consistent growth. You have these very lumpy cash flows because mm. we're dictated by these big shopping festivals where you know 30 or 40% of your revenue can happen in one particular month, which is usually the 11-11 sales event. Right. Yeah, that is interesting. And so how do you account for that as this go between you're just you're having to think about a completely different market. And so how do you straddle those differences? And I would love it if you can outline any more differences that you see in terms of spending habits between these two countries and just like how consumers interact with products. What are those differences that you've been seeing and how do you straddle both worlds essentially? Essentially, we're getting a lot of gray hairs these days. But it's, <laughs> Hence the baseball cap. It's okay. <laughs> I feel like I'm in therapy. But I would say that the Chinese consumer is also one that is looking for a brand that has a status. We see that there's been a big trend away from lifestyle brands to premiumization. So what I mean by that is slightly more expensive brands are are receiving a lot more airtime than the small indie brands mm. and it's becoming a lot more expensive to market i think one thing we've noticed in the last two years is cost inflation for using creators has gone through the roof and many d2c brands have suffered globally and, and that's not just in china it's globally and now it's a point where the larger brands have been able to buy market share especially during these high cost times so the main difference between a fan in China and the fan in the US is that they see the creator as someone they want to support. I actually call it the supporter economy from the way that they consume is that they always want to support that person. So you have these influences that they follow on a daily basis because it's almost entertainment. And if they don't follow them seven days in a row, they don't get that bonus point on the platform. So they want to see them win so it's very much about supporting that influencer. In the US, I think it's less so of supporting that influencer. They're looking more from a relationship point of view. They're looking for a relationship with that influencer. And that's why I think a lot of the platforms here in the US haven't done well on social commerce because um, the consumer is not looking to purchase, whereas in China, it's very commercial and they're looking to support because they know that every product they buy from that influencer he's going to receive 10 or 20 percent commission so it's a very subtle difference but i would say that's probably one of the biggest differences right and how would you compare and contrast like the kind of influencer marketing celebrity marketing of a product between the countries 
So we can describe this in two ways. So on Tmall, which was the last five years, it's been very much focused on what I'd call the super mega creators of mega KOLs, such as Austin Lee or Via. And it was very easy for a brand to go to these influencers because they were, you were almost guaranteed to do X or Y million dollars of sales because they had such an incredible reach. So when they went live on a live stream, it's not live streaming on Instagram where you have 3,000 people signing in. They had 80 million people. 80 million people is the size of a you know, medium-sized country. It's insane. Right. <laughs> and they're all clicking by. That's when you're doing $10 million of sales in 10 seconds. And that was really what I would call the big difference. And everyone thought live streaming was a flash in the pan in China, but it continues to grow. And now what's worth seeing is that TikTok, which is now or Douyin in China, has really started to outpace. And what's happened is that instead of using the very big, large live streamers, it's dispersed along the fat tail of the bell curve. So you're getting not just using the very big ones, it's using a lot of the smaller live streamers as well. So I would say the live streaming is... 1,000% the biggest contrast with what's happening in the U.S. market right now. Although I'm saying now that Superordinary is now an official TikTok partner here in the U.S. So we are starting to see early days of live streaming starting to pick up on TikTok. So if we had to use the same analogy of how Tmall and TikTok in China started to dislocate one another, we could start to see something similar here in the US. So I have to say in the next two years, I'll be starting to bet more on TikTok in the US as we start to really encourage a lot more of the creators to work with brands on TikTok. And when it comes to knowing that in the space of social commerce, live shopping, essentially, in China, knowing that they have been way ahead of the curve in this regard, and we've talked about this on the podcast before, I'd love to get your point of view on what are you seeing in China in the realm of social commerce that's coming next that the U.S. can possibly get ahead on? Like, what, is there anything that you're seeing an uptake in? Like, aside from live shopping, are there any other trends that you're noticing in China, knowing that they have had this general head start yeah. before us? Is there anything that you're noticing? Yeah, I think the first thing we noticed is that the brand and the consumer and the conversion channel are becoming a lot closer. So, you know, what I mean by that is that TikTok is now what I would call the new D2C platform. Hmm. It's no longer your website. And I think if you talk to any brand in America, they'll probably tell you that we do 60% of our revenue on our website. We'll do 20% on Amazon. There's some on some other platforms and then the rest in brick and mortar or maybe a little bit more. However, if I would have to hazard a guess or bet a dollar i would say that the website volume is going to continue to decrease over time and that we should be focusing on where the consumer is spending more of their time which is on these platforms and that's why i think what we've done at super ordinary is we started to think forward on this too because the difference we have between china and the u.s is that in china there there's very few platforms but in the u.s there's so many platforms So we've actually created a LinkedIn bio product called Superlink. Mm. And Superlink is our answer to consolidating all these different platforms under one roof. So a creator can basically add their Instagram, add their TikTok, add their LinkedIn account, 
And really, we can start to speed the creators' deals through this platform so that they're able to activate a lot of brand deals because 90% of the revenue that a creator actually makes is from brands. And it's very difficult for them to get in contact with those brands. So we're still figuring it out, but I think it's early days. But we're seeing a, the breakdown of the antithesis of moving away from the traditional website to these new smaller platforms. Yeah. And that's entirely true. And that's so often with a lot of creators who will just use like a link and bio service. And so I'm glad that you brought up Superlink because I was going to ask, what made you want to start Super Ordinary's own version of a link and bio, knowing that there's Koji, there's like Linktree, yeah. there's so many, there's so many so options. Many. So what made making your own link and bio service make sense? So it was really born out of the view that brands are spending way too much on acquiring a customer. And that it was inevitable that we needed to figure out a cheaper way to acquire a, a consumer or a customer. So we have two software platforms. One is called FanFix. And by acquiring customer, you just mean like marketing? Yeah, marketing. Okay, yeah. yeah. And the only way we thought about it was if we could control the traffic. Um, so FanFix, which is one of our software platforms, which helps creators monetize content through paid messaging and content online, and Superlink, which is our own link in bio with monetization features on it. We basically have built a platform that where we have basically have spent no money acquiring the consumer or the customer. The way we do that is that we've found that creators acquire their own fans and fans bring on other creators. And it has this incredible flywheel effect that allows us to grow the user base of these platforms. And as we start to grow the number of Superlinks out there, we're learning so much about the use cases of each of these creators. So one creator's in fitness or one's in beauty. And we're able within our, our warehouse of products to then start reaching out to them and saying, hey, Casey, would you like to promote this men's skincare product? We noticed that you like A, B, and C. And we don't have to go and speak to a brand because we already are working with that brand. And we're able to communicate directly with the creator, bypassing all these different channels and have a relationship with you directly. And I think what's so special about that is that we have a lot of first-party data, and that first-party data will allow us to do other things. So we could start running ads against your platform because we know that you like X, Y, and Z. And it really helps us learn more and more about the consumer and the creator. And we truly believe that in the future, if you don't understand the first-party data of your the creator and the consumer, you really don't have a, an advantage. And I really truly believe that the creators today are still trying to figure out how to make money. Like yep. it's not easy at all. We hear about mental health and fatigue. And I think there's something to be said about really taking your time to be very thoughtful. So we at Super Ordinary and through our software are trying to think through what can we possibly do to make it so simple for these creators to build their own career, make money, use all these other platforms, but centralize it under Superlink or Fanfix. I'm so glad you mentioned that because I did want to get your input on this problem of creators making consistent revenue. This is something that 
I talk about all the time on this podcast is there is this cry for the middle class of creators is something that we hear time and time again. And it's true because there's a very small percent of creators who just like skyrocket to success. They can make just more than my salary on one sponsored post alone. <laughs> but that's not the reality for the vast majority of creators. And so yeah. having that consistent, reliable income is something that is what a lot of creators are just crying out for. So like, what are those pain points that still exist and how might we address them? Yeah, I think, first of all, there's no free lunch. I think we need to start there and draw a boundary where, you know, and a base case that, you know, it takes time, no matter what you do in your life, to you've got to invest in yourself and take your time and then really find a passion that aligns with what you want to do. Because if you don't, I think ultimately it's not going to work. So I think what's happened in the creator economy is we've had this incredible oversaturation of the number of creators coming to market, thinking that they too can be Charlie D'Amelio or these large creators. And, and I think that's a unrealistic expectation. So what we try and think through with our platforms is really think through what are the low lift opportunities for a creator to monetize themselves. So whether it's selling products or whether it's message blasts or doing live streaming, we want to create these tools all in one, one software solution for these creators. And what we want them to do is to build up their audiences on all these other platforms, whether it's TikTok or Instagram or Snapchat, and really help them monetize themselves on Superlink. We're very early into this platform right now, but you know what's exciting about it is we've seen a lot of creators come to the platform, connect their bank account to our payment system, and are able to turn on monetization features immediately and start communicating. They may be offering advice or an astrologist giving a reading. It's these types of things that we see as a service that we're providing to these creators. And what we've noticed is many of our creators now live outside the U.S. More than 50% of our revenue is coming from creators in the Middle East, in the U.K., and in Asia. So I think we've discovered product market fit, which is always something that it's a challenge. But I think the middle class is where you should always be thinking in terms of the long tail. Because, you know, the big creators are serviced by their own managers and their agents, but you know, whenever you think about a business that's based on the long tail of anything, that's when you have real opportunity. We're going to take a quick break. And when we're back, we'll hear more from Julian about where Super Ordinary is going next. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks. And automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology. Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. So, Julian, you mentioned Superlink, which, of course, is Superordinary's version of a LinkedIn bio feature. And we know that Superordinary got its start in China. So I'm curious to hear where you're looking to expand both the company itself and what you offer to creators. 
I think from our perspective, we see the opportunity to really start growing internationally. And whether it's in India or in some of these other regional markets, we see an incredible thirst for a platform such as ours. I think we've really managed to get, as I said, product market fit. We've recently opened in the UK. We have people in the Middle East and also in Singapore now. And we really want to build out the opportunity to service these creators at scale. And why it works so well with Super Ordinary with our brands is that all of these creators are looking for brand deals and we're starting to bring and match these brands directly with these creators. So I think it's a very exciting space to be in. The channels are starting to get blurred and one creator can speak to 50, 60 different countries. So the future for Super Ordinary is really about creator commerce and the consumer And I really am excited because we're in the very early innings. And I think if you look at any of the research reports, the number of creators that are growing, we believe there'll be over a billion creators in the next seven years, but that's not unless you've really take care of them. So we really treat our creators who work with us as our own family. It's really investing in them because if they're not successful on our platform, you know, they're going to talk negatively about it. So we really make sure that our creators that come on have an incredible experience. Mm. And as you think about expanding Super Ordinary into other countries and other areas, you mentioned the Middle East, that brings you back to wanting to talk about how you're operating with the U.S. at odds with many countries that <laughs> that you are looking to expand and namely China. I mean, there's yeah. countries in the Middle East that are constantly <laughs> in the doghouse, both I we're know. in their doghouse and vice versa. So how are you wrapping your mind around, we can first start with China because I know that this, that was a country that really yeah. provided like the baseline for Super Ordinary and its operation. So as the tensions between the U.S. and China have gotten more and more fraught over the years, How are you navigating that? I think when countries, there's tension between the two, I think the demand for our services to be that partner for the brands entering into China just goes up exponentially because it requires a lot more finesse to get these brands in. The Middle East, I think the one truth we know is the complexity is getting harder. So the demand for a company like Super Ordinary to alleviate some of these tensions and being able to help brands do and operate within these countries becomes more important. But I also think about the world, and as you probably can tell, I'm not from America, I'm Australian, and I've lived around the world all my life. And I thought you were from <laughs> Fresno. I'm kidding. <laughs> and, yeah, and I think the one thing is, you have to think about the world in unison as some markets will go up and some markets will go down, but collectively believe that the creator economy is heading to the top right. And so is the beauty industry. So you have to really back what we call like these super mega cycles. And we generally believe that you have to have exposure to each one of these markets. And if I had to tell my investors or my board that we don't have exposure to the biggest beauty market in the world, they'll be like, are you crazy? And I think that's really where we see the growth. So we're super excited. And now that we're starting to see that the market's really starting to bounce back, the U.S. market's just entered its next bull cycle in equities. We're pretty optimistic, I would say, given how negative the world's been for the last two years. And you mentioned that a company like Super Ordinary is necessary to be that that bridge in a way. So with that being said, it sounds as if like you haven't had 
any friction or pressure from these tensions reflect directly on super ordinary. Is that right? Yeah, I think we've always been a really honest and trustworthy partner for brands. We hire local. We really truly believe in supporting the local economy wherever we are. We employ close to 300 people in Shanghai. And I think we have a really strong reputation of helping and build value for our employees. So I really am super proud of what we've come from and continue to do so. And I think as we enter these other markets, the proof is really when I would say some of it's turnover, we have a very low turnover rate, but I'm excited to, to see where the next five, 10 years take us. And where do you think those next five, 10 years will take you? <laughs> it's funny, like I look at the demographic growth of where some of these markets, India certainly excites me. Mm-hmm. I think India by and large, I think it feels very untapped in a way. Yeah, it it also reminds me a little bit of where China was five years ago. Mm -hmm. From a price point, they're a much lower price point than the AOV in terms of the purchases they buy. But, you know, there is going to be that premiumization trend. We start to see many Indians living abroad like the Chinese and they're continually expressing their wish to purchase foreign products. And one of the things that we're seeing in India is that similar to China is that many of the foreign platforms are available locally So you've then got to think, okay, how do I take advantage of that? So using our experience in China, I think there's a lot of similarities. But yeah, there's enormous opportunities there. And also, I think there's an opportunity also in the US as we start to see that seismic shift moving away from direct-to-consumer websites to other platforms. So we're positioning our business to really be able to take advantage of of top-of-funnel activity through the creator space and then also as we start to see the channel attribution move away from the traditional websites to amazon and tiktok so we're always looking for brands that you know one of the shout outs is i really look for brands that we can bring to these other markets and be their trusted partner and continue to work with these brands in more interesting ways do you ever see super ordinary working the other way as well that is to say exposing the U.S. to products that we don't get, the Chinese products or products in the Middle East, products in India that we don't get here. Do you ever see it being this two-way exchange instead of a one-way exchange? We've actually recently started to see the demand for Chinese products in the U.S. There's a really interesting brands that have been developed, which I'm really excited about, especially in the food category. You've seen some incredible... I was just going to say, we see it like (laughs) the globalization of food. That's really the tipping point for so many other industries. You see it on TikTok, on so all over social media, like people talking about like different snacks and whatnot. And I think you're out in LA, I'm in New York, like we're exposed to different like Chinatown and Koreatown. And like, I can go, I can hop on the subway and get like authentic food from a different country. But there's a lot of people who don't have access to that. You can get dumplings delivered to your house. We just had dumplings in the office. (laughs) (laughs) It's crazy. And I think if that's a measure of success by how brands are getting in in the hands of foreign consumers, I think that's really exciting. I don't remember a time I come home and I've got three boys and they're cooking dumplings at home. I'm like... Hmm where do you get this from? And they're like, they just bought it on Apple Pay, on TikTok, and off you go. It's exciting. And why not have Chinese brands in the US and cosmetics and beauty? But I think that will take time to grow. But I think now that the quality has improved so incredibly in the factories in China, I actually think most of the clothing 
in the world is made in China still. So it's not too often, it won't be too late till we start to see more Chinese brands. Nice. And can, considering everything that we've been talking about and really thinking about like how much Super Ordinary has evolved in a relatively short amount of time, and you said like it's been like five years since you launched, I guess like what place do you see Super Ordinary having in the creator economy in the next five years? It's been five years since you launched. So what place do you see for your company in the next five years in the creator economy? Look, I, one of the things I'm really excited about is being able to control the top of the funnel for our creators and for our brands. In my wish list would be for Superlink to have 50 million to 100 million users on Superlink. It's a big audacious goal and it's our smallest part of our business so far. But for us to be able to use that platform as a way to connect creators with their consumers and help these creators monetize themselves so that they can be self-sufficient. I think there'll be an incredible dream of mine to really help creators monetize themselves and help find a job. Because I think the disruption we're seeing on a daily basis globally is that people are losing their jobs because productivity gains from using AI and other software. So we've got to be pretty considerate about how can we help others. And I think if we can figure out ways to do this at scale, I think there'll be an incredible achievement. Okay. A hundred million. <laughs> I'm super like, you hear, <laughs> listen, I'm that. holding you to it. In five years, I'm going to check in. And if you don't, then... Casey, I'm getting you to sign on after the show. Yeah. <laughs> Sponsored we'll by see. I know. Like, God, could you imagine? <laughs> uh, but Julian, thank you so much, man. I really appreciate it. Yeah, doing really cool stuff at Super Ordinary. So I'm glad thanks, we got a chance to so chat. Much. Yeah. Yeah. Look forward to catching up next time in person. Of course. No, for sure. For sure. That's going to do it for this episode of Creative Control. This is a weekly podcast, in case you did not know. So make sure you're subscribed on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast. And as always, make sure you rate and comment as well, because I love to hear from you. Fast Company podcasts are produced by Avery Miles, Blake Odom, and Julia Shu. Editing and sound design is by Nicholas Torres. And our executive producer is Joshua Christensen. Mm-hmm.